when someone comes to the marketplace and talks to Microsoft, parts in the ecosystem are harmonized. They're interconnected. They're interdependent. And this is the magic, right, of the ecosystem is that it has this sort of like integrated, holistic, tied togetherness. And by the way, the power of the ecosystem is entirely a function of how interdependent and how interconnected the actors are. Welcome to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering. In this podcast, Vince Mincione, a proven industry sales and partner executive, brings together technology leaders to discuss transformational trends and to deconstruct successful strategies to thrive and survive in the rapid age of cloud transformation. And now your host, Vince Mincione. Welcome to or welcome back to the Ultimate Guide to Partnering where technology leaders come to optimize results through successful partnering. I'm Vince Menzion, your host, and my mission is to help leaders like you unlock the leadership principles and learnings of the best in the business to get partnerships right, optimize for success, and deliver your greatest results. The decade of the ecosystem. It's a term that's been coined by my good friend, Jay McBain. And another well-known thought leader in this discussion on partners, channels, and ecosystems is my next guest on Ultimate Guide to Partnering. Alan Adler, managing partner at Digital Bridge Partners, and someone who's been leading this discourse on ecosystems and the evolution we are all seeing, joins us. I invited Alan to the podcast because leaders need to learn from his work and counsel on how to construct and align their organizations for success during this time of change and transformation. This is a thought-provoking conversation for serious listeners looking to drive their organizations from the boardroom through to every customer discipline. This episode is packed with so many great insights. So my recommendation for anyone willing to learn and evolve their thinking is to listen carefully. I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I enjoyed learning from Alan Adler. Before we dive into the interview, I'm happy to announce that PartnerTap has become a founding sponsor of Ultimate Guide to Partnering. PartnerTap is the only partner ecosystem platform designed for the enterprise. Their technology makes it easy to align channel teams with automated account mapping, letting you control what data you share while building a partner revenue engine. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Vince, a pleasure to be with you. I am so excited to welcome you to Ultimate Guide to Partnering. You're a well-known partner channel and ecosystem thought leader, and you've been at the center of much of the discussion and the debate that's been going on right now on this whole decade of the ecosystem conversation. So I'm really delighted to welcome you here today. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. So for the one or two of our listeners, some of them in the Microsoft partner ecosystem that may not know you, can you tell us a little bit more about Alan? Well, I've been in partnering for about 30 years. I actually started my first company in management consulting in the partnering space called MSI Consulting Group right about the same time that Jeffrey Moore wrote Crossing the Chasm or published Crossing the Chasm. So that's a long time ago. So I think I'm in my fourth decade of partnering. But I think what what's excited me the most is the last five years when I woke up and realized that something was going on on the other side of the digital bridge. My company's called Digital Bridge Partners, which was that these born in cloud, born in tech companies, the quote unquote SaaS community, were taking a completely different approach to partnering. And I put myself back to school to relearn partnering from a digital native and SaaS company perspective. So that's really what's led me to this whole ecosystem thought leadership that, that keeps me going 24-7. You brought up a great book, Crossing the Chasm. It's, it's a Bible in many respects on some of what we talk about in terms of the tech transformation, in terms of crossing over and the acceleration and growth of organizations. I want to spend a little bit of time here on these last five years as well, because I was in the partnering world. I'm, an, I'm also, I would call an OG when it comes to the world of partnering, been around it for many years. And I think it was around that same time, that five-year time frame, when the cloud really started to take off in a big way and organizations were moving to subscription models. Partners, the big tech organizations like Amazon, Google, Microsoft, were really looking to lure these SaaS software organizations into their ecosystems. It really, it's like the, the two seem to happen at close to the same time, would you say? Yeah, no doubt. I think if we really had to put our finger on the, the beginning of the fundamental shift in the way our society operates, the way economies operate, 
you could pretty much, I think, look at the iPhone as being sort of like this, this seminal moment, which is 15 years ago. But nonetheless, when the iPhone first came out, we didn't have marketplaces and we didn't have all the stuff that we've got now. But in the last five years, we've hit the tipping point where so much ISV stuff is happening, so much SaaS-related software eating the world in the form of subscription-based processes have taken, have become mature, have begun to mature. And it's, it's that combined with AS and the PaaS movement, which have produced SaaS, if you will, if you think about the three IASs, three ASs, right? Uh, that's really transformed everything in the world. It's not just transformed channels and ecosystems and technology and subscriptions, it's just transformed the whole world. And we're just, we're in the first, very first inning of digital transformation, but already in that 15 years since the iPhone launched in the last five years when it's all reached that what I'll call the inflection point or the critical mass point that we're starting to see just how profound a shift this is going to be for the world. And we'll never look back. I would agree with you. And these last, especially the last two years with the lockdown and the digitization of everything moving to telehealth was something as an example. We've been talking about telehealth for more than 15 years. But it was really during the lockdown, people started using it. We started making it acceptable to work from home for any, almost any role that was an information role. But just all of the shopping, everything has moved online. We're three to five clicks away from something showing up at our front door in two to five days. It's really true. If you look at bellwethers to indicate whether this is something minor that's going to go away, I think a couple of stats really stand out in my mind. The first, Bain did an analysis of the growth in market capitalization since 2015 and concluded that over 70% of all the growth in market capitalization since 2015 has come from that tiny percentage of companies who are pure tech or who are mostly tech. Mm. 70% of the growth in market capitalization over seven years. That's amazing. Maybe it's now instead of it being 70%, maybe it's 65% because the market just corrected a lot, but it, it doesn't change the fact that the market, which is probably over a long period of time, the best bellwether of value creation and zeitgeist has already said everything that will be digitized, everything that can be digitized will be digitized. And all value creation is going to come from the digitization of that, which was formerly physical that now becomes virtual. This is where it's at. This is what's going to continue to be at. And it, I think what's really interesting, I don't know what you think about this, Vince, but I believe that most people who look at the past last, say, 20 years and then look forward, think, oh, my God, so much has changed, just scratched the surface of how technology will change us. And I think you make a great point. Last three years, right, we have seen a massive acceleration in digital transformation just because the pandemic made us do it. But it was really just accelerating us into the big, very beginning innings of this change. And if you're not thinking about that as a parent, as a grandparent, as a business leader, how technology will change us. Don't look in the rearview mirror because the cues will be in innovation going forward, not so much on what happened in the past. So just think it's an exciting time to be alive. And the rate of change is only going to accelerate over the next X number of years. Such an exciting time. And you reminded me of the quote that every organization is going to become a tech organization, right? Everything that you said in the physical world will be moved in or shifted into this digital world, this That's technology right. world. I think about shopping. I think about going to a clothing store as an example, right? Or having a tailored. And this is all going to be transformed, right? We're going to, we're no longer going to go to the store. We're going to, it's going to take a scan of our body. The clothes will come to us custom designed to suit our needs. It's already starting to happen. Yeah. And it's interesting for those who of your listeners who have come from the channel world, like both of us did, our whole orientation has been what I call proximal. It's like your physical location in relationship to the customer. And I think the point you're just making is that proximal value, which define channel value add to a great extent, is continuing to be virtualized to the point where if proximal value is your calling card, you've got a very tiny calling card and it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Eventually it'll disappear. And so that the real question is every who else has to be become a technology company and be technology led are all of the channel partners who have historically been selling, reselling, distributing, or some other form of proximal value that's just continuing to go away. Yeah, we're going to talk about that, in fact, because I first of all, I want to, it reminded me of the quote by Jay McBain, our mutual friend, 
when he talks about the clinic in upstate New York and the local reseller in upstate New York selling to that clinic. I don't know this. I don't think that reseller necessarily has to be in upstate New York for one. And the second thing we're really starting to see, I've had a couple of guests on recently talking about marketplaces. I had the marketplace leader for Microsoft on. I've had Tackle.io on the podcast. And I believe the marketplaces, we talk about this digitization and let's talk about a, think about it in a, a token format. The marketplace offering is going to be the primary offering, I believe, in the way that we move forward and sell digitally. I wrote a blog about two or three months ago called How the Ecosystem Ate the Channel. Mm-hmm. And it's basically the, the story that you, you can't really think in a channel context anymore. And a good example is what you just said. In, in my view, digital transformation, SaaS, and the ecosystem has essentially reversed the polarity on distribution. It used to be when you made a product, you were a vendor, the first thing you looked at from the long tail was how you're going to find a distributor, proximal value, to get you to proximal bars who were in places that you weren't covering. That was the way that yeah. people thought about it. What marketplaces are, is they're, they're the new version of distributors, except instead of being in the middle, they're at the front. Right. Distribution has always been the middleman. Marketplaces move distribution as reversing the polarity back to the front. And so now if you're thinking about going to market as a vendor, instead of going to a distributor who's going to get you to a channel, you go to a marketplace is going to bring you to a customer. So it's like all of the order of operations has been completely reversed. If you take a channel, go to market. That's one of the reasons we we created the go to ecosystem movement, because go to market is backward in every way. And we can dig into that. But that's a. It's a fundamental premise that that I came to and an understanding I came to that go-to-market had to be completely reimagined in a digitally transformed ecosystem-mediated world. And that marketplace offer, whether it's a private offer or public offer, is going to aggregate all of the partners that are going to go deliver that whole solution for the customer. Exactly. So the customer thinks, can I go to one place where I can get everything I need? That's human nature, right? That's why supermarkets exist. That's why markets Back in the old day, the marketplace in the street corner, all the vendors, because people want to go to one place if they can to get the answers. Why would you go to a thousand places when you can go to one? But the the point of aggregation to your points, moving upstream to the marketplace, not to the channel, which existed because the marketplace was inefficient. Jay has also said that a third of all the revenues will go through marketplaces and that like 90% will be controlled by 20 vendors, 20 marketplaces. Mm -hmm. So you start to see this reemergence of aggregation, but it's at a very different point in the customer journey. And it's a completely different entity than the one that used to exist. That's why distribution is in you know deep doo-doo because they don't even know what to do or so where to do dive, it. Yeah, I agree with you. So let's, let's dive in a little bit more on the ecosystem conversation too, because we, we all quote the Accenture study, right? The 76% of CEOs in every industry and in every geography believe their businesses will be unrecognizable. And it'll be due, due to ecosystems. Why do you believe we're finally ready for this now? I actually think that Accenture was wrong. Really? Uh-huh. I think that if you ask the question slightly differently, which is how will digital transformation impact your business? The CEO answer would be correct. That digital transformation will force us to reimagine our business models. But when they add the part about, and the ecosystem is the primary reason why, most people don't even know what that means. Mm. Most people don't even know what an ecosystem is or how to define it or parameters of it. And so when you start to use words that don't have meaning because they're not properly defined or they're not best practices or standard shared understanding, you end up with, it's like saying motherhood and apple pie. What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. So I would argue that yes, digital transformation is a well understood proxy for business model transformation, but this ecosystem connection is not well understood. And when we survey CEOs in our client base, our perspective is that only about 25% of CEOs understand the power of ecosystems, the transformative engine of growth and valuation, but far fewer of them know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. So that's 75%, 25%, less than 25 That's a pretty big difference. And I'm willing to debate a censure on that. By the way, that was in 2018. Yeah, that was, years that was four years ago. So I don't think they knew what they're talking about. The CEOs or Accenture, for that matter, because they sometimes you you do market research and you come up with a quote, and then everyone says, "Oh, that's it." But then you ask the why why question, eventually find out people really didn't know what they're talking about. So you brought up a really good point about CEO understanding about ecosystems, and I agree with you here, especially and in the SaaS world as well. And I do believe that they rely heavily on the channel, the uh, chief revenue officer, the CRO role, to tell them how to drive revenue. 
let's dive in a little bit about how would you define an ecosystem? Because there's a lot of different definitions here. I want to make sure we're clear on what ecosystem means. Yeah. So we look at it on three levels. So the first part of ecosystems is that we're dealing with a with a group of actors. They're usually interdependent. There's some interdependency associated with those actors. When I say actors, I can mean companies, it could be partners, it could be community members, but just call them actors. Everything from an individual or company that, that have some degree of interdependence, which means that they relate to one another in some way or another. They are in some way or another orchestrated to innovate on some kind of platform or core, or core offering. In other words, they're not just floating around being actors. They're, they're actors and their interdependence is happening in the context of some kind of orchestrated innovation on some kind of platform. So like the best example people use is like HubSpot or, or Salesforce, right? A group sure. of actors called ISVs and consultants, for that matter, system integrators, are doing some kind of innovation value add on top of a platform like HubSpot or CRM. HubSpot or Salesforce CRM. And then the third piece, which is really the important piece, is that they are essentially delivering customer outcomes that customer mediated outcomes, meaning the outcomes are picked by the customer from a interconnected solution set. In other words, the customer looks in the marketplace, you mentioned marketplace, right? And says, I want this piece and this piece, and I'm trying to achieve this end-to-end outcome, right? I'm picking them, but they're interconnected. So when I pick this one and this one, they're going to work together. So this is these are the three elements of an ecosystem. Interdependent actors innovating on a core offering to deliver interconnected customer-mediated solutions. That's how we define ecosystems. Yeah. And from my analogy, coming from the Microsoft world, this could be, let's call it a third-party security ISV delivering their solution on Azure, leveraging both Azure and the customer's platform, and then being delivered with and through potentially another, let's call it a systems integrator. Might also have an influencer on the front end of it who's helping to drive the the sales process. So all those things. So exactly. So because that third-party ISV understands Microsoft's what they call IP co-sell model. They know that they're motivated to build on Azure in a certain way. That's the second piece right there. They're being orchestrated to innovate on a core offering, Azure. And then they are then delivering this interconnected customer-mediated solution. So the third, the customer picks the system integrator who might also be IP co-sell by because Microsoft has both consultants, system integrators, and ISVs. But when someone comes to the marketplace and talks to Microsoft, parts in the ecosystem are harmonized. They're interconnected. They're interdependent. And this is the magic, right, of the ecosystem is that it has this sort of like integrated, holistic, tied togetherness. And by the way, the power of the ecosystem is entirely a function of how interdependent and how interconnected the actors are. So a very loose ecosystem, right? We'll have actors that are floating around. They don't really depend too much on each. They're not really interconnected and they might not have done innovation on a core offering. And guess what that is? That's an ad hoc classic channel model, which is one of the reasons why channels are being disintermediated by the ecosystem, because you can see the strategic opportunities in adding those three elements, right? Innovation, orchestrated innovation, interdependence, and interconnection. When you add those factors to your go-to-market, bang, you have magic and you have customer centricity, you have customer experience, you've got stickiness across the customer with respect to churn, you have partnership alignment with respect to the ecosystem and all the boats rise. That's that's what we call go to ecosystem. So you have several organizations here, right? Complex organizations, many that have to harmonize together. And we talked about that CEO who may not even understand what it ecosystem is and how to leverage and organize around it. Let's talk about that for a second. Like, why do you see organizations fail? What yeah. would be your advice and prescription to them? There's really three three points of failure. The first point of failure is a lack of understanding of just how strategic it can be if you get ecosystems right. Almost all organizations treat ecosystems as this downstream thing. It's make the product and then go find someone to go sell it for you and market for you. That's completely backwards thinking in 2022. So the first problem is, or opportunity, is to seam the ecosystem strategy into the business model strategy. So a good example of that is you say, oh my goodness, wouldn't it be a good idea, Vince, if you and I created a company, to get other people to do development with and for us rather than we do all the development. So we might say that we're going to have a business model that's very platform oriented. Instead of making products, 
We'll make products, but they'll also have platform features, and that will encourage partners to develop with us. That's a strategic part, platform business model strategy that leverages the ecosystem to innovate. So that's part number one is making strategy and ecosystem together, bringing them together. Business model transformation plus next generation go-to-market equals go to ecosystem. So that's number one. Number two issue is that very rarely do CEOs understand that ecosystem takes a village. Gone are the days when you can give a partner leader the responsibility to go off and sell something. Now you have to have product, marketing, sales, customer success, and the product organization plus finance with their strategy all aligned to deliver value. So this holistic shared standard, shared KPIs, shared OKRs, partner-friendly operating, standard operating procedures has to proliferate through the entire organization. That rarely happens. And you see that in the form of all these partner-unfriendly standard operating procedures, no shared KPIs, and partner leaders running around being crazy because they can't deliver value if the rest of the organization doesn't come along with them. The third reason that they fail is because they, they don't get the right seniority to run the program, what you really need is a chief ecosystem officer or ecosystem chief, not a channel chief, not a partner chief, an ecosystem chief, because orchestrating the internals properly is really important. One thing, one example of the, well, I'll call it the diaspora of complexity of the ecosystems, it's, it's, it's moved beyond just partnering, right? Now you've got this big topic coming around called community-led growth and all these companies creating communities. Well, there's nothing really new about that, right? For 40 years, companies like SAP have built these phenomenal communities and those right. communities are connected to their partner. You can't have a community of advocates and not have them also be in your partners. So when you think ecosystems, you have to think about three things, right? You have to think about commerce, which is the classic role of partners to co-sell, resell, incentivization, all that kind of stuff. You have to think about community, which is like all of the individuals, whether it's a developer who's doing development or whether it's a customer who's doing innovation or mm -hmm. who's doing last mile customer realization. And then the third component is you have to think about co-innovation. So an ecosystem chief not understanding that they need to not only harmonize the strategy with the ecosystem and make sure that every line of business is doing their job, but they need to do it across those three dimensions of commerce. That's typical, right? Chief channel officers or commercial people, but also right. community and co-innovation, which are two pieces that are almost never part of a chief partner officer or chief channel or channel chief's job. They just pretty much just do the commercials. And that's really, if I were to wrap a, a circle around the entirety of failure, it's like ecosystems are much more than channels. They're value creation engines that cover every part of the business and every part of the customer experience. You've got to wrap your head around the ecosystem, which means influence, innovation, selling, customer value realization, tracking network effects, looking at sustainability and trust. All those dynamics need to be balanced. So you really need almost like a second CEO, ironically, chief ecosystem officer, yeah. to really be balancing that. Otherwise, the CEO will revert back to, you know, what I call four wall syndrome, which is where we make the thing in the in our four walls and we ship it out and we find someone else to sell it for us. That is a closed go-to-market model, which is being replaced by this new open go-to-market model, which we call go-to-ecosystem. Well, it's why so many organizations fail here, because it is stovepiped, right? I have a channel chief or I have a partner or an ecosystem or alliances leader. And they're stovepiped, even from the chief revenue officer in many respects, and they're pushing the product, right? As you said, and they're not working across the other disciplines, the engineering discipline, the marketing discipline, communities, you kind of infer to markets and branding and the like, and also the revenue piece, right? Exactly. And it's so out of sync. It's so out of sync with the way that our customers want to be served. And I always think that at the end of the day, if someone says, can you boil this down for me to something simple? The answer is the customer always wins. So we have to start with the question, what does the customer need and want? And how can we be relevant to their needs and wants? And if you start from that perspective, the very first thing that you determine is that the customer already has a group of trusted partners and individuals around him or her that are already in the tent. They're already adding value. They're already the service provider. They're the technology provider. 
They're the trusted advisor already surrounds the customer. The five so C's at the table, as our exactly, friend likes to say, right? Yeah, or what I call the ICP sphere of influence. Yeah. The ICP sphere of influence. It's that literally surrounds the customer. And so if you thought to yourself, if you were gonna if you were gonna send a vector into the customer from you to the customer, you can't almost not go through that sphere of influence. It's literally like a dartboard, right? If you're on the outside of a dartboard and there's the bullseye and right around the bullseye is a bunch of if you're coming in from the side, because you, you can't throw the dart directly anymore because there's no more cookies too expensive customer acquisition. The dart cannot be thrown directly at the bullseye anymore. Mm. That's how businesses have always operated. Marketing's got a dart for MQL, throws the dart at the customer. The customer responds SQL and off we go. That dart no longer goes into the, it no longer, it's, it's the classic dart that doesn't not sharp enough. It hits the dartboard, falls off, hits the dartboard, falls off. That's the, that's, that's what we got today in B2B marketing. The dartboard does not accept the dart. So the only way into the bullseye is through the outer rings. So you have to come at from the side rather than this. And the outer rings are composed of these companies, these the ICP's sphere of influence, that you have to make your friend. It's like tribal, right? You have to make them part of your tribe. If they're not part of your tribe, you're literally, you've got so much headwind, you're going to be out of business. Your CAC will be too high. Your ability to influence the customer will be too low. Your ability to actually drive sustained advantage. And if you're a PLG company, God bless you, you're going to struggle a lot because you're not going to have enough forces of goodness supporting you. And and we can talk a little bit about the, the different mechanisms that you could invoke, but suffice to say that whether it's a community that's going to help you through no code innovation to create stickiness, or it's a partner who's going to co-innovate around your product and develop some new last mile or it's a consultant or a system integrator who's going to recognize the value of working with you to drive customer value realization. One of those three is going to be key critical to you getting into that bullseye. And all likelihood, it's probably going to be all three of them. So I've seen this up close and personal with the chief revenue officer who hires another hundred salespeople to dial for dollars. And that's that dart that doesn't hit, doesn't stick. What organizations need to do to prepare for, or what organizations are ready for? the chief ecosystem officer role? Well, I would argue that the CEOs of any startup need to be double CEOs, need to be the CEO, chief executive officer, and they need to be the chief ecosystem officer from day one. Every CEO should be a double CEO because the reality is no startup organization can afford to hire a CEO twice. (laughs) You got to have double CEO, right? At some point in time, you're going to reach a maturity point where the complexity of your organization is going to demand that you evolve to having an individual who's the chief ecosystem officer. And the question becomes, there's actually two, two partners to that question. Number one is, how quickly are you able as a startup company to begin to build partnerships that are so provocative that you begin to enjoy the flywheel of that partner? And the quicker you get there, the faster you're going to be absolutely needing a chief, a second CEO. Just if you look at the startups, they go through this classic trajectory when they are going through their rounds of financing where, okay, it's time to hire the CFO. It's time to hire the CRO. It's time to hire the sales exec. It's time to hire the, the marketing exec. You know, they, you, and, and if you look at the unit economics of any SaaS company, you could actually do a trajectory that shows at what point of economics you need to do that. There's none of that for ecosystems, but there needs to be, right? We need to basically have the CEO, the chief ecosystem officer on the same page of importance as the CRO and the chief product officer. If you call, if you say that what are the most important functions of a business, you're clearly going to have a chief revenue officer who ostensibly should cover marketing, sales, and customer success, right? A chief product officer who should ostensibly be responsible for everything that relates to it. And I would argue that a chief ecosystem officer is of equal importance to those two roles. I left out back offices. I don't mean to diminish the importance of CFOs and HRs, CR and uh, chief human off the HR role, because they are very important. But for purposes of facing the, the ecosystem, the two that are the most powerful. Now, What's interesting is you notice I didn't mention the partner organization because ostensibly the CEO, the second CEO, the chief executive officer, would also be responsible for the partner function because a partner function continues to be important. Exactly. That continues to be important. It's just, it's a second part of their job, right? The first part of their job is orchestrating the entire internal organization, right? To marry to the outside orchestration. And then the second part of their job is actually running the function where you might have partner ops, partner marketing, and the conventional we grew up with, right? 
Who's going to do the program? Who runs channel ops? Who's the person that's doing incentives? How are you facilitating enablement? There's all that stuff still really important. So I don't mean to diminish that there's a partner leadership role and a partner officer, but that that would be a report into the chief ecosystem officer. But I evaded your question, which is like when. And I think it's it's entirely a function of how provocative the startup is with respect to the ecosystem. Because if they're following our playbook from before they make their product, they should have a very good understanding for who they should be partnering with. This is actually a really interesting discussion about like, when does it become relevant to go to partnerships? Like in our day, right, Vince, people would say, well, no, you don't go indirect until you've got your direct thing figured out. Or Jay would say, if he would use the McDonald's French fry story and say, you first have to get your fryer exactly right before you can franchise. But that's actually not true in an ecosystem world because the power of the market is so strong. The influence, the ICP sphere of influence is so powerful that if you have an idea that you're going to solve for a problem in a given ICP, which is the only reason a startup exists, right? There's a problem to be solved and you can uniquely solve it. So you're going to then go try to find product market fit. Even before you even get there, you should be identifying with whom you should partner out of the gate and maybe even get them on board before you start developing, which is also, wow, really partnering before you even have a product? That that basically means that the whole go-to-market process is broken because it says, no, first you go direct, right? That's the whole mantra. First That's you get right. your idea right, you get it direct. Now, maybe you still need to go direct, but if you go direct without the aid and abet and assistance of someone that's already close to your customer, you are going to lose. There are some interesting companies that are emerging. One's called Partnered, and they're a network that connects sales reps to other sales reps. Yep. So that instead of you having to go take a three-point shot in the basketball analogy, you ask a sales rep and another company who's right next to the basket with the basketball to make you an assist so you can hit a layup. I love the work that Adam's doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a perfect example of very early in your development, you should know which partner you're going to build on and with that is already in the door with your customer from the start. It's usually not going to be a big surprise. It's going to be some sun, like a HubSpot or a Salesforce or someone that's got a lot of gravitational pull and is essentially could be very well be a Microsoft, right? I mean, if you think about it from an Azure perspective, if you're going to develop something and you put it into the Azure marketplace, you have a high propensity to get support from Azure and all of the system integrators and ISVs that are already in the marketplace. That's right. We talked a lot at the startup phase. This sounds easy. What about the organization that's already successful? 250 to a billion dollar ISV, SaaS software company. And how do you introduce the ecosystem chief there? Yeah. You first have to do an assessment of the relative let's call it ecosystem maturity of that company. And by that, I mean, there's cer- there are certain, we have a, a maturity checklist that we're going to be introducing into the market next this, oh, it's already March in 15 days. We're going to launch our, this maturity model that basically would let you determine where you are on a series of vectors, right? So let's take an example. If you're a SaaS company and you do not have, for example, you don't have open APIs, you don't have an integration strategy. You haven't platformed yourself. You haven't created a platform that drives co-innovation investments from partnerships. You haven't created uh, ecosystem and product roadmaps to focus your resources. You're probably got some work to do back in the product house before you even uh, think about hiring a chief ecosystem officer because the technology foundation is not set up for success. But if you've already developed a robust platform strategy, and you have a way of driving scalable innovation and advancement through partnerships and communities, you might at that point be ready to start orchestrating an ecosystem to drive growth. So there I would start to look at the question, what do you have currently got? What do you currently have in the area of partner ops? You have, for example, processes for attribution, for enablement, for engagement, for incentivization, for operations, for relationship management. If you have those things in place and you've already begun to promulgate this through the organization, then maybe what you really need to do is at that point, you're saying, okay, what our real problem is, marketing needs to reimagine influence. Sales needs to understand partner-assisted, part, part, uh, partner-assisted sales alignment. 
customer success needs to start aligning third-party integrations. And now you could say, okay, I actually need a change agent, an ecosystem chief to come in and help us do that because that stuff's not going to happen automatically. That's a lot of work to figure that out. I might also at that point discover that I now have the opportunity to transform my business model and platform from a product to a platform business model because product has figured out how to platform the offering so we can do innovation, but we really haven't turned on the platform business model yet. So maybe that chief ecosystem leader will work with the CFO, this head of strategy to figure out how to align community, commerce, and co-innovation. Remember the three C's I mentioned, how to measure and adapt the strategy and the OKRs to optimize network effects and competitive advantage, how to build with and across all those partnerships and communities to maximize the, the six elements of uh, ecosystem value creation, innovation, influence, sales, customer value realization, network effects, et cetera. And then how to really get those OKRs to align with the core LOBs back that point about getting everyone on board. So really it's a function of like, how prepared are you? And you got to clear the product hurdle first, right? Because no matter what you do, if your product team is not supportive of the idea that ecosystems are going to be the source of innovation, co-innovation is going to happen in the ecosystem. If we're not prepared for that, if we don't understand that, then we're going to go out with a little cup. When you say you tin cup, you get a very narrow tin cup. It doesn't hold very many coins, right? You got a deep tin cup and that's where the product innovation comes. You struck on some really strong chords for me here. First of all, you've been talking about OKRs and KPIs. I'm a big proponent of that. And I believe that you need to embed OKRs into the organization that are going to support this ecosystem orchestration that we talk about. And then I think about mindset. I think about the organizational mindset's got to be right. Everybody in the organization's got to be rowing in the same direction because you know how organizational conflict tends to arise. Egos get in the way. Executive commitment's got to be there from the CEO. Everyone in the organization's got to buy into this. And then the maniacal focus on the execution of this has got to be super strong. And using OKRs, you can do that, but you got to have the focus on the execution of it. Do you agree? Yeah, 100%. I've done a little bit of studying recently as we've getting ready to launch this new maturity model, which is really built on an OKR framework. We're working with Microsoft, who bought Ally to introduce a legitimate automation approach to this because we, we're actually coding the ecosystem, go to ecosystem OKRs into a system. So someone can say, okay, how do I do this? And when you study the companies that are using OKRs today who don't have a go to ecosystem approach, what you see is these top level corporate goals. And then down on the bottom of the slide, there'll be a few mentions of routes to market and partnering. Like it'll be like, get a reseller to do XYZ, put a marketplace together for ISVs. And you're like, hold on a minute. Here are all these company-level OKRs. They have nothing about the ecosystem in them, zero. And then down on the bottom, we've kind of skipped right to the roots to market. And then we're going to, that's going to get us there? No way. So you're exactly right. The OKRs have to be harmonized, but it has to start at the top. That's The right. very first OKRs. Let me give you an example. Like, here's three OKRs that we believe companies really need to embrace. These are the O, company-level O's, the top, the first one. Develop a robust platform strategy, drive scalable innovation through partnerships and communities. That's an objective. Second one, That's right. evolve to an orchestrated ecosystem to drive sustained hypergrowth. The third one, change to incorporate a platform business model strategy, optimizing around network effects. So the three hallmarks of great OKRs, they are about innovation. The first one, develop a robust platform strategy. They are about growth evolve an orchestrated ecosystem to drive hyperscale. And they're about change, which is moving from a product to a platform business model by studying the network effects, ecosystem success and sustained advantage. So we believe that those objectives need to be at the CEO level. And then from each of those, you cascade down into individual objectives, which guess what? Are owned by the lines of business. So you wouldn't be surprised uh, on the product one is predominantly owned by the product, but the ecosystem chief plays a consulted and informed role in what is using a racy model, right? Um, yeah. and you move into the orchestration place. The ecosystem chief takes more of a responsible and accountable role, but also you see marketing, you see sales, you see customer success. And then when you move into the change model, you bring the CEO in, of course, he's always there or she's always there, but then you bring in strategy and finance. Because oftentimes you see strategy and finance playing the role of driving the changes because they're setting up the top level 
company goals. So this is an attempt to bring ecosystem thinking at the top and through the middle and down into execution at the bottom. So wish me luck because it's a uh, this is quite an undertaking to try to well, code this into the existing system. You are speaking my language with races as well. So we, <laughs> I come at it from that same approach. How do we get the CEOs on board? Uh, you mentioned the 25% not even understanding what an ecosystem strategy yeah. is at this point. Well, How I do think we get I, them on board? Honestly, I think doing what you're doing, Vince, you're creating a forum, bringing influencers on, hopefully I'm one of them, that is helping to educate and illuminate both the opportunity, the art of the possible, and then best practices to actually get onto execution. It's really incumbent upon, we have a go to ecosystem community. It's not, mostly it's not composed of CEOs. It's mostly composed of provocative partner leaders and product leaders. Now some sales and marketing leaders are coming on as well, who recognize that the sea change has happened and that the companies who want to crush it on, on growth, valuation, and sustainability are the ones who embrace a go-to-ecosystem model. So the community is beginning to form. And then our job as the birthers of the idea is to give them the tools, give them away for free. Here, have all the tools you want. They're all free. You go take these tools to your CEO, help the CEO. And by the way, it's not going to happen by just the CEO. What's, what's going to happen is that the partner leaders are going to convince the product leaders. The product leaders are going to talk to the marketing leaders. The partner people are going to talk to customer success. But ultimately... Why I think partnership leaders and channel folks, the folks who are like you and I, who recognize that channel is kind of still important, but it's really this new ecosystem thing. We have to become educators. We have to become evangelists. We have to be provocative and compelling and have data to support what we're saying. And if we can arm ourselves with that data and then use that data to convince the C-suite and the CEO, it'll happen. And then I think what's going to occur, Malcolm Gladwell, the tipping point, we're going to hit a tipping point yeah. where both startup CEOs and C-suites and established CEOs and C-suites are going to get it at a certain percentage. And once we cross the, the marginal line, whether it's Malcolm says it's 5%, might be 10%, there'll be some percent and then it'll flip. But the yeah. real question is how quickly can we get to that critical mass? Because the clock is ticking and you want to be in the boat. <laughs> it's like the boat has left the station. You can still swim to it. But in about a month, the swim will, you'll be eaten by a shark before you get there. Well, so, I'm excited for our mission and let's help, let's help save them from the sharks. Right on. So, so such an impactful conversation today. We could go on for hours, Alan, and I want to have you back here, but I do want to pivot given the amount of time we have today. And I'm fascinated with the career journey and helping earlier in career professionals get to a spot in their life. Alan, was there a pivot point or a spark that got you to this spot as a leader in this field? Well, it's interesting because I'm definitely not a digital native. I've been at this for 30 years plus. So when I started, none of what I'm talking about right now was really relevant. I'd been put in an institution if I had this conversation in 1991, right? And so in many respects, I think you could have to answer that question differently based on whether you're well above the age of 30 or around 30, because it's around that time that I think the digital nativehood began. And so if you're a digital native, you don't need to be convinced to drop your bags. You just need to grab new ones. If you're not, you have to drop your bags. You're carrying a lot of luggage that's not helping you anymore. And so that's where I would say, be willing to be humble and be educated. So five years ago, when I was beginning to realize that, or five-ish years ago, I was beginning to realize that although I had been in partnering for 30 years or almost 30 years at the time, I was no longer speaking a relevant language when I spoke with the CEO of a SaaS company or a partner leader. They were talking about stuff that just, what? The order of operations of how you go about partnering in a SaaS company are completely different than the order of operations that we grew up with. And all the terminologies changed, you know, channel, indirect selling. Those are almost irrelevant terms to many of these new companies. And so I would say be willing to, to start with a beginner's mind, a humble perspective and learn. If I were a digital native, I think what I would do is recognize that this is not a really a partnering career. This is a new business motion career. It's just like that. This is the, we're in the incubation of the next wave of CEOs. So if you're interested in this space, it's really because you are an entrepreneur, because you recognize that there's this fundamental sea change that's occurred and that you want to be riding that wave. 
And it's kind of interesting because one of the things that happened for me, Vince, is that about a couple of years ago, I, I realized it's not a partnering issue anymore. Mm -hmm. I used to always think it was all partnering, channels, partners. That was why I've been in this business for a long time. It's really a business issue now that cover, that that affects every single line of business. We already talked about that, right? So if you're really interested in this space, it's because you're entrepreneurial. It's because you want to be where the business is going, not because you want to get a career in partnering. The career in partnering is going to be subordinate to a career in ecosystems, which is a CEO job. That's ironically that, that it's called CEO, right? It's both funny, confusing, and prescient. So be humble and willing to learn. That's it. Yeah. I love that advice. Be curious. Yeah, I'm embracing it as well as you. Being a, yeah. being a, a fellow OG here who also used punch cards for my first computer class. You know what's a funny thing too is like the thing that really makes me happy every morning. I am learning more now every day than I ever have. And I think if you can have a job where you feel like you're learning more now than you ever have, you're in the right spot. Because that's what creates joy, innovation. It's what makes us a compelling uh, species is that we're curious and we're learning, we're growing. And I feel so fortunate to be able to say that I'm learning more now than I ever have, given that I'm very OG. <laughs> I'm right with you and I'm having a blast doing this. I'm so excited to have you, Alan, today. And Thanks. so we're going to finish up with some fun. I know this might not have been as much fun for you as it is for me to ask you, but you're hosting a dinner party. And now we're hopefully fully out of this time where we don't have to wear masks or worry about any social distancing. And you can invite any three guests from the present or the past to this amazing party. Whom would you invite and why? Okay. So I, I had some time to think about this because originally it was like, oh my God, I'll, I'll go with, I'll default to like a Socrates or something like that because it's the easy answer, right? <laughs> but you know who I, the first person I would invite would be Jesus. Jesus. And, yeah. And the reason I'd invite Jesus, Jesus, I'd invite Jesus. The reason I'd invite Jesus is because I'd really like to get his take on where things ended up. It's like, say, okay, Jesus, hey, we got, we got this kind of civil unrest. We've got the religions. Let me give you a little tour of history. How many millions of people have died? Yeah. You know, hundreds of millions of people have died. Would you do it differently? And got any advice for us? Because I, I think we've kind of gotten off the rails just a little bit. And so I'm just wondering if you can do a refresher course on this whole thing and maybe even start with, with saying like religious organizations – a couple of pointers on how you might want to get it right. So that would be my first one would be Jesus to help us get nice. things straightened out. He's also a Jew and I'm Jewish. And so, you know, now why not invite a Jew who became a Christian and then everybody's in the boat except for the Muslims who will have to invite Muhammad for another dinner party. The next, thing, next group, I'm going from antiquity to present. So the second person I would invite is I would invite the average human being from the time 1800. And I think it's important for 1800. me to explain, to explain okay. why. So I'm reading this great book called Enlightenment Now, and it talks about the period right before 1800 to today and how much better everything has gotten in the life of a human. We kind of think to ourselves, gee, we're in deep shit, climate change, inequity, wars in Ukraine. There's just so much crap. And we start to think that, that human species is really screwed. The reality is that on every single dimension of quality of life. We are so much better off. So many billions of people have lived twice, three times as long with less disease, less famine, less hardship, less pain, less struggle, less toil, less child mortality, less you name it. And it's all a function of science, commerce, and the application of, uh, of reason. And so why I want to invite someone from 1800s is I would like the entire dinner party to just see how wretched the human condition was in 1800 to remind ourselves of why we need to be optimistic and grateful and have an attitude of things can get better because they've gotten so much better. There's no reason why we're going to reverse polarity on that one. Things are going to continue to get better in spite of the, the book. By, I'm sorry. That's the book by Steven Pinker. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. We're going to pro yeah. provide a link in our show notes. Fantastic book. It's just a, such a great book because one of the things he also says, which is really interesting, is that one of the things that produces this negativity is the news cycle. The news cycle is has become extremely negative. He actually shows that quantitatively how the news cycle has been negative. And so we we are what we read. We are what we digest. You, you digest crap, you're going to feel crappy. If you digest goodness, you're going to feel good. So it's time for us to stop reading all that crap and start getting connected to what's really going on, which is that things are getting a lot better. And we need to build on that positivity rather than just going negative. And the third person I would bring is my grandfather, Abraham, who died 
four or five years before I was born, mostly because he was always this person. He was always the story at the dinner table, and uh, but it was always told through other people's voices and memories. And I'd like to hear his stories directly from him. So that's what, those are my three. Those are my Very three cool. people. And you were from New York originally. So was he from New York as well? Well, he was born in Poland, but he came over as an immigrant. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, it sounds like a great party. I would love to participate, maybe come by for a beverage. And I'd invite you, Vince. You'd be my fourth guest because we would would love that. We could have a great, we're going to continue our conversation anyway. So you have been a great guest now. I am so delighted to have had you here today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And any final advice for our partner listeners? I mean, we talked about quite a bit today. Yeah. You know, I'd say if you haven't listened to the podcasts, listen to Vince's podcasts, listen to Mark Brigham's partner Omics podcast, listen to Jared Fuller's partnered up podcast, listen to Adam Milkowski's partnered podcast, listen to these podcasts, listen to what's happening. Make yourself a student of the fact that the podcast hosts are bringing all the brilliant people to the table. Hopefully I might be invited again, but listen to them, study them, go, go to school on the podcast. If all you did is listen to a couple hundred podcasts over a period of year, you're going to know a lot of stuff. Then start regurgitating it and creating your own original ideas. And, and then I think the, the single most important thing to do is get yourself known, start posting, start hosting, start getting your ideas out on the table have a point of view and and reify that point of view and educate yourself with that point of view because we are in the influence business. So if you want to be influential, use the media that exists for us. Use LinkedIn, post, host, make yourself known and don't be afraid to be to not have the answers because you know the reality of it is the only dumb person is the person who thinks that they have all the answers. Smart person is the person that asks the good questions because they don't know. So get out there, make a mess. Such great advice. Thank you, Alan. Thank you again for joining us today. It's my pleasure. As with each of my episodes, I appreciate your support. Please subscribe on your favorite platform, like, comment, tell your friends about Ultimate Guide to Partnering and where they can find us. And I'd love your feedback. Please like the podcast and provide comments or reach out to me at Vince Menzion on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also like and follow Ultimate Guide to Partnering on our Facebook page or drop me a line at vincem at ultimate-partnerships.com. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by PartnerTap, the partner ecosystem platform most trusted by enterprise. Drive more revenue with your partners and learn more at partnertap.com. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Ultimate Guide to Partnering with your host, Vince Menzione. Online at ultimateguidetopartnering.com and facebook.com slash ultimateguidetopartnering. We'll catch you next time on The Ultimate Guide to Partnering.